There's a few more weeks left of this, and, um, and we've walked through a lot of different passages and different ways in which people encounter Jesus. And not last week, because last week we did our different service where we encountered Jesus with one another in prayer and in sharing together. Um, but the week before, I did a quick summary of like, okay, so we talked about people of Jesus pointed out to them. And we talked about people who were brought to Jesus. And we talked about people who sought Jesus out for themselves, Nicodemus being an example. And we talked about people who just ran into Jesus in the middle of their day-to-day, the woman at the well there to get water, fresh water for her household, and runs into Jesus as she's doing so. We talked about how each of us is sought out by Jesus, that Jesus seeks us out. Um, and then we, then we got to the passage where the disciples get caught in the storm. And I ask the two questions, what about when you want to encounter Jesus and you don't? Or what about when you encounter Jesus in places you'd rather not, like a storm, because you'd just rather not be there? And uh, today, we're getting to do another one like that. What about when you encounter Jesus in a place you'd really rather not? Which is to say, what about when you encounter Jesus in your sin? What about when you meet him in a place of brokenness? and failure, and conviction, and shame. None of us like encounters like that. In fact, we work very hard not to have them, to only encounter people in general, not just Jesus, anybody, at our best. When we're, partic- when we're feeling broken, or like a failure, or like we're awful, or we're ashamed, we avoid people. That's not when we want to be with people. That's not how we want anybody to see us. And you can kind of mark um, the people that you're more intimate, that you're closer with in your life by how much of your brokenness they have seen, other than those times when somebody finds out and you really didn't want them to. But in terms of the people you let into that space in your life, it's only the people that you trust the most and that you're closest with who see you when you're relaxed, when your shoes are off and they can smell your feet, Um, when you're grumpy, when you're sick, when you know you've messed up. And because we work so hard to avoid these kind of encounters, to avoid encountering anyone in the midst of our sin, we end up believing a number of lies. And what I want to do today as we walk through the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 is to talk about those lies and why they're lies and what the truth is behind them. So what are some of those lies? Well, we believe that we can actually encounter God and others at our best. We convince ourselves that we can do this, that we can put our best face forward and hide all the garbage. Uh, You can't. Preview, heads up, that's where we're going. (laughs) So we believe we can get away with it. Uh, We believe we're alone in our sin. That's a second lie we believe. We believe we're alone in our sin and need to be alone in our sin. Thirdly, we believe that God, like most people in our lives, if he were to encounter us in our sin, would be embarrassed, disappointed, ashamed, or condemning. Because this is how we often react when somebody in our life lets us down or hurts us, or when we, how people react to us when we do that to them. Um, and so this is another lie we believe. A kind of last lie that we end up believing is we end up believing that the really great people in our life simply accept us where we are. Now, in each of these lies, there's half a truth. 
And that's what, I, so that's what I mean when I say we're going to walk through them. And we're looking at what really is going on and what it means to encounter Jesus in our sin. And to do this, we get to walk with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them up. You've got your phone. Uh, it will be on the screen. If that's easier, that's great. And what we do here every Sunday is we stand together for the reading of the Word. So would you stand with me? And we do this to honor the Word of God. Um, as a means of participation, and to remind all of us, especially me, that the reading of the Word is the best part. So, there's been a big gathering around Jesus, and, um, and they're all heading home, except for Jesus. So, verse 1 of John chapter 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And Father God, we do ask that you open our eyes and ears to your word this morning and speak. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, this encounter with Jesus starts out awful. <laughs> starts out super awkward and terrible. Jesus is out teaching, and the people are loving it. And, and you kind of know you're a good teacher when you can go into the temple courts of, at dawn and draw a crowd, right? He's there at the break of day, and people are eager to hear. And in the middle of his teaching, this group of officials brings forward a woman caught in adultery. And they don't, just they don't just bring her there. We read that they made her stand before the entire group. And then they turn to Jesus and they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. According to the law of Moses, we are to stone her. I Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being that woman? Like you're, like you're ashamed, you're embarrassed, and you're terrified because they're talking about killing you. They're asking this great teacher, like, so, do we do it? Do we follow the law? Do we stone this woman? And I think we can all, we can all feel like just how terrible this would be. I start out by imagining I was in the crowd, and I would just want to walk away. 
I would, because I don't do well, like, you know, you watch movies and somebody's doing something really embarrassing in the movie and half the theater is laughing. I'm the person who's like, eh, uh, and I don't want to be there. And I feel like I, I would, in cowardice, slink away from this kind of a situation. Like, okay, you guys talk to Jesus. I'm going to go get some breakfast. See you later. Um, but I can't imagine being the woman in the middle of this. I can't imagine it at all. Um, but what's really different about this situation is not that the woman is standing before Jesus with her sin exposed for him to see. What's different about this situation is that she's standing in front of a crowd with her sin exposed for all to see. Because everybody who comes in front of Jesus does so with their sin exposed for him to see. He knows. Every time we've had an encounter with Jesus so far, he meets the disciples, he can say to Nathaniel, ah, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how did you know? Oh, I saw you under the tree. Like Jesus just has to look and he knows who you are. He encounters the woman at the well and he says, go back and get your husband and we'll talk some more. And she says, I don't have a husband. And, and he doesn't say, oh, tell me about your life. He says, that's true. You've had five husbands and you're living with a man now who's not your husband. She didn't have to tell him that. He just knew. Whenever you come into the presence of God, he knows. And that first lie that we believe because we try so hard and because we can fool the people around us some of the time, is that we can fool God. But you can't. The only, if you come to God and try to put on your best face before Him, the only one you're fooling is yourself. That's the only person in that conversation who's being tricked, right? When you come to God, the only way you ever encounter Him is in the midst of your sin. This side of heaven, that's all there is. The problem when we try to encounter God at our best is that we're actually putting up a wall. Because if you're hiding all the garbage in your life and God says, can we talk about that? You're not going to hear him. You're not going to listen. And the work he really wants to do with you, he really won't be able to because you're not willing to look at any of that stuff. And you isolate yourself in your sin. And this takes us to the second lie, which in this kind of encounter, you can't believe. But most of us try to anyway, which is that we are alone in our sin. And we don't just try to do this over ourselves. This whole scenario... Here they are, the officials, bring this woman. And you can, I don't know if they stood in a circle, but you can picture them. Jesus is here, the crowd is out there listening to him. They come up from the side and they surround from the other side and they put the woman in the middle and they point at her and they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Like, here's the sinner and we're all going to stand in a circle around her and she's going to have to be alone in the middle. Because we want everybody to look like they're alone in their sin because that keeps us safe and separate. But it, too, is a lie. And Jesus confronts this very directly. When they won't leave him alone and they won't let 
him just draw on the ground with his finger, and I would love to know what he was writing. Um, he stands up, he says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Now, being confronted in your sin is not fun. But what Jesus is doing when he says that is he's confronting all of them with their sin. You put this woman in the middle, you say, look, here's a sinner. Well, any of you who could stand in the middle and have that not be said of you, go ahead. Throw a stone, right? Again, though, whether we're making somebody else feel alone in their sin, how could you do that? What's wrong with you? Or, which is much more common, we're isolating ourselves in our sin, right? I'm such a fool. I messed up again. No, I can't tell anybody about this because it'll just be judgment and it'll be awful, right? We do this with our internal voices and other people do this to us too. But whether it's happening externally or internally, this is a lie as well. We are not alone in our sin. And just as when we try to come to God and put our best face, we're putting up a wall that stops God from working in our lives, so when we isolate in our, ourselves in our sin and we force ourselves to be alone, we are, we're putting up a wall. You know what we need in our sin? We need help. We need somebody to come alongside of us and to, to lift us up and to help clean us off and to help us begin to walk forward again. But you can't have that if everybody in your life only ever sees your best face. They only ever see the lie. This is actually one of the tricks of the devil, that he wants to keep us isolated in our sin. Because if we're isolated in our sin, if we're alone in our sin, we won't deal with it. Not that I mean you can fix yourself, but we won't get the help that we need from God and from the people around us to change. And so this whole situation that they have set up, these officials, it's based on that lie. And Jesus stands up and he says, anyone who can stand in the middle of this circle, anyone who's without sin, go ahead and get started. He gives them this entirely different narrative. It's not her standing in a separate position from you. It's all of you together. Now we have to be clear here. The issue, so this is to step out of the lies for a minute, the issue is not that unless you are sin-free, you cannot make a judgment on another person. There are way too many verses in Scripture, way too much of Jesus' teachings about the fact that we do have to not, in the, not judge in the sense of condemn, but judge in the sense of evaluate and make distinctions and even take action right? So Jesus will say, if your brother sins against you, go talk to him. And if he hears you, great. But if he doesn't, take someone else with you, a mediator, and then talk to him together. And if he still doesn't hear you, take that before the church. And if he still doesn't hear you, then you have to kick him out, right? You have to make a judgment. And nobody's going to be sinless to follow those instructions. The issue here is twofold, and it's quite a bit more specific than what, then like you can't make any kind of judgment unless you have no sin in your life. Um, he's teaching that the sword of judgment is double-edged. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount, with the judgment you judge others, you will be judged. In judging others, you judge yourself. And so we shouldn't take on the role of judging unless we have the humility and transparency to stand in the same position ourselves. 
God's call to each of us is to live holy and godly lives. And we need to be deeply concerned when that's not happening. But our deepest and foremost concern about that not happening should be over our own lives, not over the lives of others. We don't need to be perfect in order to take the position of judgment, but we do need to recognize that you can't just judge someone else without judging yourself. So there's these two clusters of reasons that come in to the problem of what's going on in this passage. Um, and we get to them by asking, what's the dilemma? What's the trap? They tell, they, the word tells us here, John tells us, they were using this question as a trap. How? How are they using it as a trap? Well, there's, a, there's two parts to the trap. First of all, under Roman law, Jews are not allowed to execute people. That's why they have to go to Pilate to crucify Jesus. They can't just do it themselves. If they execute someone, they're breaking Roman law. So the first part of the dilemma for Jesus is, I can disobey the law of Moses or I can disobey the law of Rome. Which one am I going to disobey? And either way, he's in trouble. Because if he disobeys the law of Rome, the Pharisees can all go tell on, the, tell on Jesus to the soldiers, hey, this, this rabble-rousing teacher just executed someone. Come arrest him, put him in jail, get him out of our faces. Or he can disobey the law of Moses, and then they can say, what kind of teacher are you? That's no good. Nobody should be listening to you. So that's that first dilemma. But the second layer of the dilemma is that Jesus is, at this point, known as a teacher of grace and compassion. He's been healing the sick. He's been preaching forgiveness. He's been telling people that they're free from their sins. If he obeys the law of Moses, that's pretty harsh. And it's not in line with a lot of the things he's taught so far. But if he disobeys the law of Moses, then the Pharisees once again can say, you ought not to be listening to this teacher. He's not teaching you from the word. So what does Jesus do? Well, appropriate witnesses, according to Old Testament law, are themselves to initiate the stoning. That's how it works. If you are the witness to a crime that involves stoning, then you are required to throw the first stone. But you are only allowed to do so if you are an upstanding witness, which means you have no part in the crime, there is no fault in your witness, and you had already done everything you could do to prevent the crime from happening. Now, given the circumstances here, it is highly unlikely that any of them could have made those claims. There's a number of reasons why that is the case. In the case of adultery, both the man and the woman are supposed to be stoned. So where's the guy? She was caught in the act of adultery. What did they do with the man? And if she was caught in the act of adultery, why didn't they stop it? And given all those things, could it be that some of them are lying? Whatever was going on here, it doesn't look like it's above board. Not only that, to be a person who executes justice in the nation of Israel required that you be a person of just character, which is to say you knew the law, you understood mercy, you exhibited wisdom and compassion. Instead, what we have here is a zealous mob who wants to stone a woman without giving her a fair trial, having let go one of the two guilty parties and taken advantage of the situation to try to trap someone else. 
Now, hopefully it's clear why this is all a big mess. Like, it's totally disastrous. In all the ways that the Old Testament law itself commands that justice be done, they have failed. And so Jesus can say to them, effectively, any of you who can actually stand as a witness against this woman, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and fulfill your duty and throw the first stone. And they can't. They can't do any of those things. And I think it's precisely for this reason that John notes that it is the older who walk away first. Because it is the older who would first probably be able to release their zeal and recognize, okay, yeah, we messed this one up pretty bad, and leave. The whole thing is deeply ironic. The officials have sought to trap Jesus by forcing him to choose which law to obey, while at the same time, in order to lay the trap, they have completely disobeyed the law, the law that they want to catch Jesus disobeying. And note that Jesus doesn't flip the trap around. He doesn't say all that I just said in front of the whole crowd, discrediting all of the Pharisees and all of the officials who had brought that woman there. He asks them a question and lets each of them figure it out in their own hearts and minds and make their own decision about what they're going to do. The same attitude that he has towards the woman by the end of this passage, which he expresses explicitly in, her, in his final words to her, he gives to these Pharisees and officials who tried to trap him. His mercy runs all throughout. And that brings us to that third lie, which is that we believe in fear that if we were to encounter God in our sin, he would react the same way that most of the people in our lives have reacted, with disappointment, with shame, with condemnation. And he doesn't. Jesus doesn't even react that way to the people who want to kill him. And he especially doesn't react that way to the woman. For the third time, he stands up, and the only one left standing near him is the woman. And so he asks her, he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. And she's left standing with the only one who ever could have. The only one there who ever could have actually condemned her is Jesus. And he looks at her and says, then neither do I. This is how God looks at us. We spent all fall in Exodus, and a key statement was Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is who God is. This is who we encounter when we encounter Jesus in our sin. The one who looks at us and says, I don't condemn you either. That's not what he wants. When God comes to meet us in our sin, and he does, because he wants to meet us and there's no other place he can, what he wants to do is he wants to pick us up, to give us a hand so that we can stand up, and then clean us off, and then heal our wounds, and then set us on a better journey. 
That's what he wants. We may or may not feel guilt or shame or embarrassment or disappointment over our own actions and sins and behaviors. And that's okay. That's pretty natural. When I fail in something that was really important to me, I am disappointed. I don't think that's a problem. But that's not God's point. That's not his goal. Those are natural emotional responses to the things that are wrong inside of us and the wrong things that we do outside of us. God isn't sitting there saying, okay, I'm measuring that. Have you felt shame enough? We're at five points of shame. We're at six. Okay, we're good. Now I can forgive you. Like, that's not the issue. He actually wants us to get out of those things because if you stay there, you end up wallowing and stuck, right? If, if your disappointment leads to fear, leads to never trying again. If your shame leads to isolation, leads to deeper wounding, like none of that's good and none of that is what God wants. He wants the best for each of us. And so he meets us in that place and he doesn't condemn us, but he also doesn't leave us there. Hence the final words of Jesus to this woman. Go now and leave your life of sin. And this is that last lie, which is that the people, the best people in our lives simply accept us for who we are. The best people in our lives meet us where we are at, and they are happy to be with us and love us in the midst of our mess, but they aren't happy for us to just stay there. If you find your friend stuck in a mud pit, you're not a good friend if you sit down next to the pit and say, hey, how's it going? Having a good day? Want me to bring you any food? You help them out. That's what you do, right? And this is obvious in almost every physical situation. If your friend falls into the river, you grab them and pull them out. That's how it works. You know, you go skiing and he gets stuck in a tree well. You don't just sit there with him. You get him out. And Jesus is a good friend who, when he meets us in our sin, doesn't want to leave us there. And that is a deep gift. The best people in our lives are the ones who, with love, will rebuke us, will correct us, will show compassion in our failure and help us to do better. And that's what God does as he meets us in our sin. In encountering Jesus in our sin, we find a Lord who gives us love and truth, mercy and justice, compassion and calling, forgiveness and challenge. Never just one of those pairs. It's always both, love and truth, mercy and justice, compassion and calling, forgiveness and challenge. He does not sit lightly to the law. And he doesn't sit lightly to the law in this passage because it's on the basis of the law that he's able to say, let he who's without sin throw the first stone. At the same time, he does not sit lightly to any of us as individuals. He labels sin as sin. And when you encounter God, you can expect that to happen sometimes where he will point something out to your in your life with conviction to let you know that that is sin. But at the same time, he refuses to allow us to be defined or determined by the sin in our life. He calls us to higher things. Even a woman caught in the act of adultery is called into the kingdom of God. Jesus' final words to the woman are, according to some commentators, among the greatest miracles of his life. 
Neither do I condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. Jesus, the holy and sinless God of all creation, does not look on her with condemnation, but forgiveness. And he does not look on the fact that she has been caught in sin as the end of her journey. You've messed up too badly. There's nothing left for you. I won't condemn you, but this is it. No. He says, go and leave this. Go and live the life that I have made you to live. And repentance is clearly viewed here as the natural fruit of forgiveness. This is how Jesus' words apply to each of us. Jesus meets us in our sin. We encounter Jesus in our sin, and we experience forgiveness. But the fruit of forgiveness is repentance, that we might live the new life that he has given us. And so my exhortation to each of us this morning is to stop each of those lies. Stop trying to encounter God at your best. Go so far as to seek to encounter him in all that you are right now, sin and warts and failures and wounds and everything, because that's where you need him to work. I'm not saying you should sin more so that God has more sin to encounter you in. You've got plenty already, so do I. Just encounter him in the stuff that you're already living. There's a great prayer in Psalm 139, the last couple of verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a brave prayer to ask the Lord to search and know your heart, to test your thoughts, to bring to light the wickedness of our ways. But it's the right prayer to pray. It's a prayer of deep faith to understand the character of God and to trust Him enough to bring Him the hardest things in your life because we know that when we meet Him there, He does so with forgiveness and with challenge and with a way forward. And then as you do that, don't do it alone. This is what the church is actually supposed to be. We are not a company of people who know better and get to condemn others because they don't know better. We are the company of people who know we're all messed up, but more importantly, know we have a Lord who forgives us and meets us precisely in our mess in order to take us somewhere better. And so we can support and help one another in exactly that journey. That's supposed to be the place of the community of God, that we can come here of all places and say, I messed up, and find exactly the same things in this community that we find in the presence of God. Because i got to tell you, there aren't any other places in the world you can do that with confidence. You go to your boss, you say, I totally messed up, you, you may get fired, right? That's, that's the world. That's the way it is. Church should be different. And so you don't need to be alone in your sin. You need to be a part of, of a community of forgiven sinners, a community of grace. So encounter God as you are, in the fullness of who you are, your best and your worst. Don't let sin isolate you. And do these things because you know that when you encounter God in your sin, it's not about forgiveness, or not about condemnation. It is about forgiveness. <laughs> That's how he meets us. And because you know that he's going to call you forward, and we're going to need help on that journey. And this, too, is the place of the community of the body of Christ, that we get to encourage and urge and help one another live the life that God has called us to live. 
Every one of us in our own hearts and minds has moments where we believe we are the worst sinners, where we feel the same things that the woman felt or something similar as the officials put her before this crowd and said, this woman was caught in the very act. What I want is for every one of us to know that we are her at the end of the story too where Jesus looks at us and says, I don't condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that you didn't come to condemn. Thank you that you're not satisfied to leave us in a mud pit, but that you reach in, that you came down, that you joined us, that things might change. And I pray that we would be a place and a people where we experience these things, where we experience your forgiveness and your deep love, and where we experience your helping hand and your call through one another and through the power of your Spirit among us, Lord God. Lead us in your way, and may we encounter you each where we are at, our best, our worst, in everything. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.